Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to tabletop game design. This episode has been made possible thanks to the excellent folks behind Breakout Con 2017 in Toronto, Ontario. Episode 114, GM Troubleshooting. Recorded at BreakoutCon 2017. Presented by Robin D. Laws, Matt McFarland, Anna Kreider, and moderated by Fraser Ronald. Okay, so thank you all so much for coming to see me. I got lots of really cool things. Um, so this is the GM Troubleshooting. Um, we're going to be doing it in a Q&A format, and so if you have a question, I'd like you to raise your hand high. Alexander will give you a card that you can write your question on, okay? And then I'll read the question out. Um, so, look at our lovely panel. Uh, we'll start with Matthew here. Matthew McFarland is a game designer and speech pathologist from Cleveland, Ohio. In addition to extensive work for White Wolf Games Studio, Onyx Path Publishing, Matt co-owns Growling Door Games, Incorporated. He's been GMing since he was 11, and he knows a lot of wrong ways to do it. <laughs> so this should be useful. Who wrote that? Did I, write I, I, I deny any knowledge. He knows some right ways, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's to be hoped. Yes. Uh, we have Robin D. Laws, who's designed such role-playing games as Hillfolk, Feng Shui, Yiso Terrace, and Ashen Stars. He's the author of eight novels, plus the short story collection New Tales of the Yellow Sign, and has edited five original short fiction anthologies. Robin is the winner of five gold and five silver Emmy Awards and the coveted Diana Jones Award. His work has been translated into ten languages. Hear his soothing voice here and on the weekly podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, which is awesome. Love the podcast. Thank you. And we have Anna Kreider, an illustrator, writer, and game designer of Thou Art But a Warrior and Starlet Kingdom, as well as co-designer of The Watch, which is kickstarting right now. How much time is left on that? Uh, Eight days or seven? So lots of time. Lots yeah. of time to back it. Everybody, here. You have no choice. Um, yes. Uh, addition upon the yeah. attending the panel. <laughs> oh, sorry, you missed that subscript at the bottom. That's yeah, that. sorry. <laughs> she is also freelance for a number of companies like Pelgrim Press, Onyx Path, and Wizards of the Coast. And is the former author of the popular <laughs> feminist gaming blog, Go Make Me a Sandwich. And we have Jonathan Lavallee who's been making games for over 13 years and has been recently working on a series of cooperative games starting with his mystery, Powered by the Apocalypse game, We Used to Be Friends. He previously created works like Gesa and Critical Go Westerly with Jeff Bouton. He has written for Chill and was the line developer for Cyber Generation. So we have a very distinguished past to answer your questions and troubleshoot your GMing. And lacking any questions right now, why don't we think of what's your favorite game to GM and why? Uh, Matthew? Oh, Lord, yeah, start with me. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. My favorite game to GM. Okay, Robin? Please, yeah. <laughs> so my answer is a bit of a cheat because I uh, my full-time job is being a, a role-playing game designer. And so my favorite game to GM is whatever I am currently designing. That is uh, so uh, right now, it is, uh, I'm working on a new game for Pelgrim Press. We're going to be kickstarting later called uh, the Yellow King role-playing uh, mm-hmm. game. And so it's uh, a 
uh, horror game based on the works of uh, Robert W. Chambers and taking it and uh, folding it into the idea that what the appearance of the yellow book does is it fractures reality. So it's a multiple reality game where you play one segment in Paris in 1895 and then uh, now we've moved on to the second one when you're in an alternate reality war and there are a couple of sort of uh, an alternate reality modern horror and then a regular reality modern horror section. Um, if it was, if I'm not working on something at the time, uh, what I prefer to run with my lovely and talented uh, group, of which we have one of the main exponents uh, here, uh, is uh, Hill Folk, uh, also designed by me, but is a, uh, a storytelling game that requires very little input from the GM. The GM is uh, radically disempowered in Hill Folk, meaning the GM is radically, has to do a lot less work <laughs> in preparation. You can't prepare to run Hill Folk. And so we had a massively long, like 35 uh, episode ride of Hill Folk recently that was a, a real blast. So, uh, you know, the, the often in GMing, the less you have to do, uh, the better, and that's a, a game that happens to facilitate that. Fantastic. Anna? Um, so I actually um, started out designing almost exclusively for GMless games because um, the idea of GMing was incredibly stressful for me. Uh, it wasn't until um, I started uh, co-developing The Watch, which is powered by the Apocalypse, that I got dragged kicking and screaming into learning how to uh, run Apocalypse World. Um, <laughs> And even then, we made it so that there's a lot of things that take take away. There, there's so many moving parts to running Apocalypse World. It's kind of a nightmare. So we, we put a lot of stuff in there to take away that extra work. Uh, so it does a lot of that stuff for you. But yeah, so um, I, I've, I'm really good at running Apocalypse World, but I still default to things like... Um, I mean, if I'm at a convention and I'm not running a game, like I'll run a lot of Fiasco or The Roach or um, uh, Polaris or, um, you know, stuff like that is, is more because you don't have to prep for it and other people are sharing the GMing load. Um, so something similar. Um, I've discovered I'm finding I, I want to spend less and less time preparing for things. Um, and so any game that uh, requires limited to no prep time. Um, so I have been running a lot of Apocalypse World stuff, uh, powered by the Apocalypse, because a lot of it is you kind of get a really quick start idea and then you can kind of just run with it. Um, so yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm with, and on this one that I'm focusing a lot more now on, on a cooperative play space rather than a, a GM-focused um, thing, because I think one that completely eliminates any prep time because you can't prep if you're all working together, um, or you can, but like I don't, I haven't thought of how to do that. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm going after games. I'd like to to GM. Perfect. Sure. No, I got. <laughs> I the reason I kind of got like deer in headlights there was because I run a lot of different games, um, and I like Rob and I like to run stuff that I'm working on, but I also just. Uh, like to, to obsessively collect and back Kickstarters for, for indie games. And so I love GMless games, but I also, I still like the prep. I don't always have time to do it. Um, and actually, one of the games that, I don't know that it's my favorite to GM, but um, I've been running uh, Promethean the Created, 
um, from now Onyx Path. And one of the reasons that I like it is that, I mean, like any uh, kind of more traditional game, there's a lot of prep that goes into GMing it because you've got to you know design storylines and make up NPCs and so forth. And you can offload some of that onto the players if they're willing to do it. But I mean, it you know really comes back to you know, doing it as a GM. But uh, Promethean also has, each individual character has their own sort of journey that you're making up the stops along the way. And it is a lot of work, but it's it's work that I enjoy because I like delving into the, the you know, kind of the, the, the humanistic and the spiritual journey of these characters. And then watching the players uh, hit those milestones and then whether they agree with them or they don't agree with them, but then building the journey kind of from that is a lot of fun. So it's it's uh, it's work, but it's it's work with payoff. So it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the comments have been talking about prep, little prep, um, prep that you love. So um, one of our guests writes too much when they prep. So the question is, how do you organize your brief, underlined brief notes? So that they're usable at the table. And since we're in a gaming convention... Jonathan, you start! <laughs> um, uh, point form is your friend. Um, I don't want to write down dialogue. I want to write down the beats that I'm going to hit, the elements that I'd like to see, and not necessarily in an order that I think they need to be in. Um, that way, I, I, if the, the group is going up that way, I can be like, oh, great, we can do that now. That's going to be fun. Uh, we put that there, and we didn't touch these two. Maybe we'll come back to them. Maybe we won't. Um, so, so the idea for me is it would be point point form and be willing to pick. You know, don't don't you know point form that you can modify and like modulate. I think is the word I want to use. Words like that. Um, I mean, I tend not to do a lot of prep it anyway. Um, something I always include as part of my, um, if I'm ending a session and I feel like whoever got the least screen time, I, I will make a point of asking that player, is there anything that you want to see for next time? Um, and I will always put that at the top of my notes for what I want to try and remember. Um, but kind of uh, the game that kind of infected how I think about prep is, um, if any of you are familiar with Dogs in the Vineyard, um, it's literally, you create a situation, and then you have the NPCs who are the major figures in that uh, situation, and you just write down what they want. And then you don't do any other prep, it's just what do they want out of the situation. And so when a player is like, because the thing about running dogs is the, the players always do crazy things that you never would have thought of. Um, so when they say, well, okay, well, I'm going to do this, then you just look back at your your NPCs and say, well, what do they want? How is that going to affect what they want? Are they going to go along with that? Are they not going to go along with it? Um, and that's kind of how I tend to organize my notes is I create a situation that's memorable for me and that way I don't really have to like write down a whole lot of stuff and then I just go, well, who are the major people that they're going to be interacting with? What do they want? And then inevitably when a player comes up with something really harebrained, I'm like, uh, <laughs> alright, what does that person think of that? Okay, cool. Or, no, they're, they're going to... Um, but it really simplifies like what I have to have in front of me. Great. Uh, writing less is about writing with focus, about uh, knowing what you're going to need and starting with that, and that uh, often you can do that and stop. So uh, what I would recommend is, first of all, uh, have an idea of what your first scene is, uh, because the players are... Uh, most of the time, maybe in a sandbox game, you want them to show up and say, okay, well, what do you do next? 
but even when you do that, you want to have an idea if they go, uh, what your first scene is going to be. And then what choices are you going to give uh, the players or set in front of the players as your initial uh, assumption of how things are going to go? Um, and what might they do in response to those choices? So that, A, gives you focus, and B, make sure that you're giving them choices, that you're not just writing something for them to be pulled through, but something that they are going to push in a particular direction, and you are going to uh, respond to that. Now, it may well be that they're tr you give them a choice between you know, going up the mountain or finding the, uh, the route through the underground river, and instead they decide to fly. Um, and that's better, right? Um, so that a lot of your prep may wind up having to be adjusted on the fly, which again is the virtue of doing very little prep. So uh, know what your first scene is going to be. Think of some choices to put in front of them. Um, I, I run a lot of investigative games. I like to run Chill, and I like to run uh, Gumshoe, actually. It's one of the systems I really enjoy. And investigative games, I find, makes for a lot of, a lot of prep for... The, the situation as a whole because you need to know what there is to know. Um, but then once you have that, the players are going to take the investigation in whatever direction they take it, but as long as you know what clues there are to find, you can pretty much have them find them in you know wherever they wind up. And like I said, well, it, it, it makes for perhaps a little bit more prep before the whole game starts, but then as it progresses, so if you're running you know, multi-session games, hopefully you'll be doing less and less every time because all you're doing is kind of ticking off, okay, well, they already know, you know this bit. This is you know, kind of where we need to focus next time, but the prep's already done. Good, excellent. Um, so uh, there's a little bit of talk about uh, uh, NPCs and what they want. Um, now, how do you make a brute force villain? So like giants, titans, that kind of thing. Interesting for more than one session. Who wants to jump on this grenade? Go. Uh, you can give them a, a, a motivation other than exercising brute force. So that the giant, you know, uh, you know he may, wants to control the village. But he, he doesn't want to have to stomp everybody in the village flat. He, do, he doesn't have to want to stomp the uh, adventurer's flat because, you know, he's got arch support problems and, you know, they wind up flat, but so do your feet, man. Um, and so give them something else, and their, their plan B, of course, is horrible violence, uh, but, but plan A is something else. And also, until they get to the horrible violence, you have to establish, A, the giant is capable of horrible violence. Uh, actually, with giants, that's not so hard. That's <laughs> implicit. Um, but, you know... And, normal sized character, you know, you want to establish that they're the complete badass who can, you know, pluck out their eyelash and kill you with it. Um, but that once you do that, they can be very nice and, and reasonable and, and polite and, uh, you know, lay out what their agenda is and explain to the adventurers how, you know, really rather not have to kill you. But, you know, if, if you make a fight of it, you know, statistically, I will kill you. Uh, and then go from there. The brute force actuarial. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, the approach I tend to favor is um, having giving them a motivation that is heroic but taken to monstrous extremes, um, and 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 make it something that like the the player characters actually would be sympathetic, uh, but then just up the ante until it's no longer sympathetic. 
um, one of my favorite um, towns I ever ran for Dogs in the Vineyard. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's kind of like Old West gunslinger Mormons with the serial numbers filed off. Um, I, I came up with a, an idea for, like, wouldn't the best heresy ever be that, like, women are people who get to do things with their lives besides have children? Uh, and then the villain of the town was actually, like, someone who believed that so hard that they were willing to worship demons and, like, kill all the men who didn't agree with them. Um, and that, you know, when it gets to that point, like, that's, that's a problem when it gets to murder and the player characters have to do something to stop it. But then there were, they were really conflicted about, but no, we, we actually agree with her. We just don't agree with what she's doing. And I, I think that's a great way of, because then even if you're like, okay, we're going to have the big fight scene, you're still making it like really emotionally conflicting. On an abstract level, killing all the men checks out, but <laughs> it's messy. So one of the, to kind of take it uh, in a logistical sort of a direction, one of the problems that I find, and this happens in a, in a bunch of different systems, is that if you've got a group of player characters going up against one dude, no matter how badass that dude is, the, the problem that you run into is that if you're running anything like a traditional system, which is you know everybody gets an action in combat, the characters get five actions to this dude's one. And so on the one hand, it's a lot less prep to have to stat out you know one, one giant. But on the other hand, if they're just going to wipe the floor with him in the first couple of turns, it becomes kind of a not very satisfying fight from anybody's perspective. And so uh, now do I have a solution for that? Not particularly. Um, but one, one, one possible idea, though, um, quite beyond looking at making the, the character satisfying by going into you know, issues of motivation or you know, having them work at not quite cross purposes uh, with, the, with the players, which Anna is something I love to do to my players too. Um, God damn it, we like this guy, but uh, um, is maybe the point of the fight isn't, isn't I have to kill you. You know what I mean? If both sides are trying to achieve a goal which can be achieved physically or violently, but that doesn't necessarily involve whittling hit points down, then the fight doesn't have to take as long, and it doesn't have to be everybody's action is going to be swinging a sword, club, firing a gun, or whatever. And it lets the players kind of flex muscles that they don't normally get to flex, because it's less about tactics and less about combat, and more about, like, okay, well, how can I, if we're both trying to get to that summit and, you know, eat the ruby or whatever, how do we get up there first? don't know why you eat a ruby. Because you're hungry? They're very crisp. <laughs> Sage is preparing to kill all the men. <laughs> sure. Like you do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave that ruby. <laughs> um, so kind of a little bit piggybacking off, but it's the one thing slightly different is um, personality, right? Like, we have a default understanding of how characters, particularly if you have monstrous characters, kind of like the large thing, and how they would act. <laughs> we have an expectation of what the, the badass acts like. We have an expectation of what a, a giant acts like. We have an expectation. So if you infuse that character with, with a personality beyond or, or subverting that, then that creates something interesting that will lead to being conflicted with them. Uh, you know, uh, I, I remember one time, you know, I running a D&D &D game ages ago, but there was a, a, 
a necromancer who had a personality, and they gave him a nickname, and he accepted the nickname. Aww. It was a ridiculous cue. They're like, but it's Poof. They're like, yes, I will take that. I am now Poof. <laughs> and they're like, what? They're like, yes. It's like, you know, because this now changed it, and now they're like, but we have to go and defeat, but we don't want to because it's Poof, right? <laughs> and so, so if you give them a personality, then you will find a lot of those things also will help flow into the conflict, into the, that, that, that uncertainty, and into that kind of other motivation. Very good. Um, now, uh, we're talking a lot about story here, and when in the arc of the game, where, when in the arc of the game do you nail down the narrative arc, and how do you know the time has come for that? Speaking as a game designer, uh, I, I'm a big fan of making that arc like a mechanical thing, uh, because then it takes all of the work out of your hands. Um, so the first game I ever published actually has a, a doomsday clock, and every time your character basically loses mechanically loses a piece of their soul that represents like hope and optimism for the future, uh, they add a point of discord to the world. And when your doomsday track fills up, then everything ends and is horrible. Uh, it's a tragedy. Uh, which, so which game is that? Uh, that Road to Warrior. Yeah. Um, and the game uh, that I have on Kickstarter right now to watch, um, we actually borrowed uh, the mission structure from Night Witches pretty explicitly, where we say, this is a military campaign, so here are all the missions you're going to go on, and if you complete all of them, that's the point at which the game is going to end, and here are the points in the story where things are going to kind of change mechanically based on where you are in the arc. But um, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of making that explicitly part of the mechanics, because... Um, then it really becomes up to the players to decide how fast they want to engage with that arc structure, like how, how fast do they want to work through that content. Um, and it's not you as a GM trying to say, and now we are going to have this story beat and we're going to progress to the right. It, it's more democratic. Ganakagak uh, does something similar. There's, you know, when number of stars in the sky and as dawn approaches you can't see as many of them in any way there's a mechanic for counting those stars and then when the game changes beats when you hit a certain number of them going out um, as far as kind of more traditional games go that don't have those kinds of mechanics um, I guess learning to to read the, the table is really important if you're, if the players are spinning their wheels, if they're doing the same kinds of things over again, or if you imagine this as, as a movie or as a miniseries, like at what point in this have you built up enough tension that the next logical beat would be a change, would be confrontation, would be uh, what Fiasco calls a tilt? You know, would, would something have to, would the, what does Chandler say, when a man comes through the, through the door with a gun? Um, and some of it is, some of it is instinct, but some of it is just like paying attention to what's already happened, and um, and and just feeling out narratively like, okay, what needs to happen next? Um, I guess mechanically, one way to look at it would be if the characters have, if you're playing a game that has a uh, build up experience and spend them on stuff. If the characters have a bunch of experience points that they're spent up, that they're, they've built up on during this particular arc, that to me is a pretty good indication that, like, okay, 
y'all need to blow through these, and then based on what the players buy, like that should help uh, indicate what should happen next. I personally don't find it very satisfying when you go all the way through a story arc, finish the story arc, and that's when you spend the experience points, because now it's like, well, but I know I just spent a point of punch points on driving, but the next arc might not have anything to do with cars. So, like... Oh, me, okay. Um, so, I, I think it's something you talk about, right? I, I, you know, if you're talking about with your players what's going on, if you're like, hey, we did this great thing, what do you feel you want to do next? And everyone's kind of like, well, I don't know. Maybe that's the time to be like, okay, well, that was a really good kind of climactic ending point. We can put this aside and maybe come back to it later, right? Because that's the other thing, too, is that we have this idea that when we're done something, we're done with it. It is finished ever and never again shall we come forth and use this situation or setting or people again. And, and what's great with a lot of games that are coming out now is that they say, no, this is an end, even mechanically, but you, you know... For some, you can come back and say, go, go play something else, and then come back and be like, okay, well, now that I've been refreshed and I haven't really been thinking so hard about this character or these, this situation, I now know what I want to do. I now know where, where I want to take to the next step or, or, or for what the next arc could be. So, so that's the suggestion I have, is sometimes come to a decision as a group and decide to play something else and then come back to it and find out if you want to go for it. Because the answer could actually be, I think we're done. Uh, I'm going to speak up in favor of spontaneity and allowing uh, the gym and players to find the escalation point when things suddenly move into high gear uh, themselves in the course of the story uh, because uh, that way it comes about as a surprise rather than something that you know you're all working toward. The way that you can enable that to happen is just implicitly have introduced into the story (coughs) something that uh, they can sort of, well, eventually we're going to have to X is going to happen, and uh, once X happens, we know that things things are hitting a fan. And so, uh, very recently, uh, I started an adventure, the the Yellow King, and thought that the characters were going to uh, do A, but instead, uh, one of the characters got uh, you know the classic, here's a potion you shouldn't drink, basically, and uh, so I'm drinking the potion, and I'm going to go and meet the Yellow King and talk to the Yellow King. And that was the obvious escalation point. And so that gave uh, uh, Rachel the chance to suddenly escalate the narrative in a way that nobody was expecting us to do. And so it was super cool. It was, I'm so proud. Yeah, yeah. So it was super cool for everybody. And so uh, Rachel wasn't res- responding to, oh, the doomsday clock has gotten to 11, so now i got to drink the potion. It was like, oh, we didn't expect things to go this way way, way worse <laughs> um, this early, but now it changed the whole shape of where everything went. And so it meant that, you know, oh, okay, well, what's the other escalation point now? What's really going to uh, happen? And then, and that also wound up being something that I didn't expect to uh, to have happen, and that will change the shape of the, the rest of the arc going on. So uh, basically, the another approach to that question is that uh, you're not nailing down the arc. The arc is, as they say in Russia, nailing down you. <laughs> Very cool. We've been talking a lot about stuff happening at the table or preparation for the table, but there's also another aspect to being a GM, and that's the community that uh, you belong to or create sometimes. Just as small as the table you're at, but you might be part of a larger gaming community. So the question is, what is the largest gaming community you've been a part of, 
um, like in real life, uh, uh, um, on, on the internet, etc. Uh, what made it successful, and do you run it or play in it? We need the crickets sound. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think it's the end of the, the yeah. thing, because if you're part of a community, you're not playing, like you're, you're, you're a member of the community or you're organizing the community. I think the ending just kind of was a little wonky, but I'll, I'll take a stab at that, just because we're all kind of, uh, so right now the largest community I've ever been a part of actually has been TAG. Um, so the Toronto Area Gamers has been, uh, there's a thousand, there's like a thousand plus members, and um, I've no way, shape, or form organized because I'm terrible at organizing. I wonder, even if I run a game, I'm like, someone please organize it, I'll just show up and run it. <laughs> Make me not do logistics, please. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's the largest one, and I think it's successful because there are people who are running it, who are dedicated and run it and take the time and effort, because community is work, and uh, it's that extra level of work. Um, so people who are running games and running the community have my utmost respect because that's a lot of lot of emotional cycles being diverted to that and helping other people find games in that. So that's what I would say for that. Um, I've been pretty active on Google Plus for sufficient years that I can't remember how many years I've been active on Google Plus. Uh, <laughs> And um, in terms of like um, my most successful community involvement, I definitely say that um, Google Plus is kind of weird though. It's everyone has their own circles, and so you end up kind of having these weird kind of overlaps where maybe there's someone who's not in your circles, but they post frequently, and someone that is in your circles, and so you kind of um, it's a very weird kind of organic space. But um, because it's so organic, like there's no one really in charge of it um, but uh, in terms of being like the community that I get the most out of definitely uh, my conversations about gaming on Google Plus are um, where I get a lot of my uh, um, creative fulfillment around that um, for in person there's uh, a LARP group based out of Hamilton that I've actually been yeah. <laughs> uh, but that one is kind of hard to tell how many I mean there's maybe like 40 or 50 people total, but I mean, the most we've ever had for any one game would be like 25. Um, and that's kind of pulling from like Hamilton and Kitchener and uh, Toronto and a bunch of different areas. But um, our person who used to be in charge of that uh, moved to Sweden. And so we're, we're kind of reorganizing right now and that's a bit tough. But um, So yeah, what you said about running a community is like completely different than running a game and it's hard, man. Um, Cool. So that person is putting the Nordic back into Nordic. Yeah. Yeah. She, hardcore. What's more austere than Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she moved in winter too, right? So like, if you're going to commit, commit. Yeah. yeah. Go beer, go home. I don't think of myself as running any communities, but if you create things and people like them, a community builds around them, uh, especially now in our world of the internet. So, you know, when I design a game, uh, there's a, a community of, of people who play it, and the more successful the game, the, the bigger the community. Or, uh, you know, there's a community of people who uh, listen to the podcast that I do with Ken Hyde every week, and, and some of them support it with money and keep it going. Uh, and there's no better form of love than money. 
so uh, I, I try not to uh, organize things because that sounds like work, but if you're putting uh, cool things out into the world, uh, a, a community will choose itself around you, and that's uh, good, and you don't have to take minutes at the meeting, so that's also good. Um, I'm the convention coordinator for the Indian Developer Network, and that's that's a different kind of community, but what, what that falls on me to do now, because I've only been in the position a couple months, but um, so I get to organize booths, but I also get to organize uh, things like, hey, what's our Gen Con presence going to look like this year? And when you're talking about an organization that has 65, 70 members, we're probably up like to 70, yeah. 75 members now. Um, we lost a couple at the beginning of the year, but we gained a couple we immediately, gained. so we, yeah. I think we've kind of evened out. But like, everybody wants their games to get run, but not everybody can get to the convention. And so we work on coordinating, like, hey, can we get volunteer GMs in, and then can we teach them how to run these games, and can we get them some sort of, you know, inducement to show up and run the games, because, you know, if it's just pure volunteer, I want to, you know, we want to at least give them, like, free copies of the game or something like that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of that, uh, that logistical stuff that... That y'all seem to hate. Um, well, <laughs> you may notice I'm members of the committee that I'm not actually in charge of anything. Yeah, no, no, and that's yeah. So, um, I I like the weird logistical stuff. I can't I can't defend that because um, it is work. But it's uh, I think I get it from my mother actually. But um, so so there's that. As far as uh, communities involving actually running games, the closest I can really get is when I was in college. I was running Chill Second Edition at that point, and I probably had 70 to 100 people that would play, but not at once, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> so the way that we typically work it is like, I'm like, okay, I want to run a game tonight, and um, that could be any night of the week because of studies. Um, I got games to run. And I just start calling people, and when I got five or six people, I'd stop. And uh, there, was, there was something weirdly satisfying about putting different mixes of people together um, who, who only knew each other through me or through mutual friends and kind of seeing what the game dynamic would look like and there were at least two or three marriages and a lot of shorter term relationships that came out, out of that so that was fun. That's a success. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't kept track. We'll just leave it at that. Um, earlier on when we were talking about prep, uh, a lot of people were pointing out the, that they wanted to go with minimal prep and, and little prep. So um, also get moving uh, uh, the GM back from uh, involvement at the table. So if the GM isn't like prepping, uh, uh, running things mechanically, what, what does the GM do at the table? What else are they doing? The number one job is to read the mood of the room. And to, uh, it's more really a, it's always, especially in a low prep game, being a facilitator for what's going on, and you're trying to create sort of the gestalt level of entertainment and engagement and happiness between a group of people who may have sort of disparate tastes. And so, you know, you need uh, some uh, ass kicking for Jenny and some negotiating for uh, for Josie. Uh, but uh, uh, and. The reason it's about reading the room is that that can change from week to week, is that uh, one night everybody might show up and they're kind of punchy, and so, uh, you know, a night where you, you, you might decide, okay, well, I'm going to stop them from digressing and keep them on track, or, you know what, I'm just going to lead them to a situation where they can riff and be silly and, and lean into the punchiness. Uh, 
So it's, it's really about finding what people are going to enjoy on that given night and try to the best you can, because you may be having a low brain activity night as well, in which case, you know, again, you want to shunt them toward <coughs> something that's not going to be as, as high pressure on, on you. And it's about, uh, you know, the great thing about gaming, that we're, the reason we're all here, is that magic that happens when the, everything becomes greater than the sum of its parts and the contributors, and it becomes something that you're going to talk about uh, later. So your uh, job, uh, just as the job of a sculptor is to take a block of marble and cut away anything that doesn't look like an elephant, uh, you're trying to, uh, as subtly as you can, uh, chop away anything that uh, isn't driving everybody toward maximum fun that night, given where everybody's heads at. Um, even when you're playing a game that's nominally jamless, um, it always goes better when you have one person facilitating and kind of coordinating things. And um, I, I think in that situation I fall back on um, the important thing, whether you're calling yourself a facilitator or whether you're actually being like a, a game master or an MC or, or whatever it's being called, um, you're there to manage uh, Spotlight. Uh, to make sure that you don't have one player really trampling on uh, everybody's screen time, because that's a thing that happens. Um, but, uh, and, and you're also kind of, um, I mean, like what Robin said, paying attention to what people want and then making sure that things end up going in that direction, um, which, um, you know, also manages, uh, involves managing pacing. Um, you kind of have to think about um, I mean, someone mentioned like the, like like a TV show. Like, kind of think about it in terms of a TV show. Like, what in terms of the story that we're interested in telling it tonight? Like, what kind of pacing does that demand? Should I be cutting back and forth between people more actively, or should I, like, uh, have longer, slower, more slow build scenes? Uh, and then the last thing is also um, keeping an eye out for the emotional safety of everyone at the table. <coughs> because um, the players are there for themselves and their own experience, but um, as a GM, um, we also have to be aware of maybe when someone is pulling back or um, looks like they're not okay and um, being prepared to uh, uh, deal with that and make sure that everyone is having a good time. I might have nothing. That's really the, the kind of the... The, the, I mean, other like since we're not talking about preparing, those are, those are the two big like thing. I don't have anything to add to that. Thank you for your honesty, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, Let about about the, the best that I can do. Already heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> what, what what they said. I guess you know to to sort of underline something that that, that Anna said. It's. One of the one of the things that I that I find that people have a lot of trouble with, especially in more narrative focused games, is knowing when to say cut or knowing when to say you know exit, um, and that that knowing when a scene is over, I think that it's important that somebody at the table is paying attention to the beats and how the how the how the pacing of the scene is going, and is empowered to be able to say, all right, that was awesome. You know, now over to Linda for the weather, you know, whatever. Um, so that's about all I can Cool, oh, excellent, fantastic. Um, and since we are at a con, um, there's going to be people that are going to be gaming with strangers. So, any advice for running pickup games with strangers? Uh, one little trick to start off with if 
Uh, it's a, a, a role-playing setting uh, where you're, you know, each playing different characters you've picked up probably pre-gens, uh, and uh, try and uh, find a connection to another uh, a, a thread that connects your character to another character. Now, the GM may do this, so give the GM time if they have a routine. You don't want to step on their thing. But if it looks like it's going to be the standard, okay, you're all going to meet in a tavern and a guy's going to tell you uh, which orcs to go fight. Um, just say, so uh, I was wondering, if, does anybody here want to play my sister or, or you know, my sibling? Or, uh, you know, uh, or w- why do you think, uh, we're an elf and a dwarf. Elf and a dwarf. Elves and dwarves normally don't. Uh, like each other why why do you think we really like each other or you know how long do you think we've known each other and then and maybe if you have enough of a sense board if you see that there's uh someone who seems a little uh, uh shy or is you know giving visible signs of you know wondering why they're there you don't don't scare them too much but uh say so, you know pick that person to be the one to build the connection to if anybody's played uh dread the, the horror game using a Jenga tower. Um, it's I love the game very much, and the the character sheet is uh, a series of questions. And so, um, when you're when I'm running games that are are kind of more traditional set of like if I'm running a World of Darkness game or something at a con, a lot of times I'll make the characters, but then on the back side of the sheet I'll put five questions for that character and. Usually, at least one of them, kind of to follow up on what you said, Robin, will will tie them to one of the other characters. But it's also a way to get the get the player a, ma- a way to make this character their own, and also to start thinking about the character in the context of the story. So it's not just we're going to take you know these people, plop them in a tavern, and you know this this scenario will work with anyone. Um, but it gives them it gives them a way to to personalize things a little bit more and to kind of let the player, that player's personality kind of come out. Um, so yeah, definitely what they've said about um, tying characters together uh, is very important. Um, for me, I like to aggressively manage expectations for a convention game. I like to set out, so here's how much time we have, here's what we need to get through, um, you know, uh, especially running the watch, the watch is kind of setup heavy, so I will start off a slot by saying we're going to need an hour to 75 minutes to get through character creation. That's not going to leave us with um, a lot of time to goof around. Uh, so we're, we're going to power through character creation, we're going to have a 10 minute bio break, and then we're going to power through the name of the slot. Um, and really like setting expectation for um, not just like the kind of story you're going to be telling together, but also like here's how we're going to spend our time um, so that you don't have things like someone's like, oh, I'm going to go take a five-minute smoke break and then they don't come back for 20 minutes, right? And then everyone gets really upset with them. Um, just kind of setting that up front so that everyone's very much on the same page and then everyone's focused on here's the story that we're telling and not other external kind of things. Um, I think there's tools, since we talked about GM being aware of player safety, um, there are certain tools that are available that I think are particularly useful in con games. So right now you'll notice if you play in an RPG, there's a card on the table. Um, that's one. There's one, there was a flower like an that I really liked because there was one that you could be like, you know, it was different, it was color-coded. So you can be like, okay, like, 
just as a heads up, like you tap the yellow and it's like, all right, we know we're hitting this kind of troubled waters and we could, could go one way or the other. You know, if you're uncertain about things, you can kind of ask and someone can hit the green, like, yeah, I really want to keep exploring this. And there's a red for like, nope, we're going to stop, right? So like, like finding more and more, there are a lot of tools like that available um, that I think are really useful for helping managing people's fun and their safety at the table, particularly um, with the big rush of games that explore problematic content or difficult content. I mean, before you would run into like a, a fantasy game, you would just be like, you know, so someone can introduce a topic that would be difficult and we'd kind of come out of left field, um, particularly depending on, on the description of the game. But there are some games like The Watch, like Night Witches, like, like a lot of those games that yeah. will hit, that, that intentionally are aiming for those notes. Uh, and so having something that you can be like, well, let's, no, let's not go there. Um, is, is useful because you don't know these people, right? In a home game, for people that you're used to, you can have these conversations, you can talk about this, you can bring it up, you can have discussions, okay, hey, this, this game may be, this session may be featuring this, this, and this. I mean, you can also do that with a con game, but you'll have that greater understanding of the players at your table when you have these conversations on the regular. A con game, I don't know, there's a good chance I don't know any from the hole in ground. And you may not feel comfortable having that conversation at that table. So that's what those tools are for, to help provide that, that safety for the players when you're dealing with this content. Cool. We've got about uh, four minutes left, so lightning round. Um, during game creation, so uh, again, prep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're done! <laughs> um, what tools are in your wheelhouse? So what do you kind of rely on when you are doing prep or... or Wikipedia. <laughs> I run a lot of, like I said, I run a lot of uh, investigative games in like modern, you know, real-world settings. And being able to jump on Wikipedia and type in Boise, Idaho, and learn, you know, the history of the population, the demographic makeups, any nearby hospitals and everything, so I don't have to make up any of those facts. I can just pull them out of real life. I'm grabbing physical things. Yeah, Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, uh, to reiterate, uh, thank you for first seeing. Think of some choices. Uh, that is a lightning. Yeah, yeah. Note cards. Um, you need a quick note, you need a quick reminder, stickies or note cards are great to have, so you can just kind of jot it down and have it there, and then you can, it's a physical thing that you can come back to later if you need it. Note cards are also required by law for all indie games, I think. That's true. <laughs> That's true. true. Uh, so my home group got me doing this thing where we, uh, when we start a game, we uh, create a Pinterest board for that game, and then we pin pictures of the PCs and all the NPCs. And then uh, my co-designer, Andrew Medeiros, uh, got me started on this thing where he prints NPC photos off of uh, Snapfish. And then I just literally have a package of, like, 50... Uh, pictures and when people are creating characters I'll just kind of spread them out on the table and be like choose a PC and then when I need an NPC I'm like they look like that right uh, and it's really cool like people find it really fun and it also uh, like I don't have to try and come up with a cool description on the spot I can be like oh I want that one right that's who you're talking to um, and it's really cheap. It's only like a couple bucks. If anybody remembers the game Everwave, Jonathan Tweet uh, designed one of the early uh, uh, narrative-focused games. It used a similar technique of having cards that you use for inspiration. came with a bunch of really cool cards. One of them had a, a, a tiger humanoid on it. And as a consequence, every Everwave party had a tiger dude in it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the cleric of Everwave. <laughs> Um, how much time do we have, Alexander? Uh, 
Three minutes? Okay. If anybody's willing, what's your greatest weakness as a GM and how have you overcome it? People having their fucking phones out at my table. <laughs> no, and, you know, I say that because there are some very legitimate reasons to be looking at your phone while you're playing an RPG, and I really do try to keep that in mind. I have players who are ADHD, and they need that extra stimulation to kind of keep their heads in the game. I have players that have families or have kids and need to be able to check in. It still drives me up a wall when I, I'm trying to do a scene and I look over like just put it down. Oh, babies. I'm trying to be understanding about it. Oh, Robin looks this way. I can say we're going this way. Um, <laughs> um, it's called sub moderating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> moderating from below. Is that um, uh, setting. Um, it's a writing problem I have too. I just need to be like, you're here. What about it? Ah, oh, crap. Uh, yeah, it's this. It does this thing. Yeah, there, there, there are rocks and trees and birds and squirrels. What do you want from me? Um, so I tend to have, like, again, quick notes. When but but the squirrels have agendas. They, right? they have agendas. <laughs> there's, there's things right. they want. Right? You put the makeup on one side and keep the squirrel on one side. <laughs> Fantastic makeup. Thanks, Eddie. Uh, uh, and so uh, what happens is, yeah, just like quick little like words I can use to bring up when I do the point form notes. So if they're here, it's blah, blah, blah. Right? And just so that way I can try to remember to look at it to just provide the description rather than assuming everyone lives in my head and knows what it looks like. Um, I, I hate being in charge of everything, uh, which is why I was scared of learning to run uh, Powered by the Apocalypse for so long because there's so many things to be in charge of. Um, so I... I I don't know. I, I got over it by just doing it. Um, but even then, like being on this panel, like when Kate asked me to be on the panel, I'm like, but I don't know what I'm talking about. And she's like, shut up. Yes, you do. <laughs> Kate is wise. Yeah, but I was having a little bit of imposter syndrome about being up here. So, uh, My biggest challenge is that because uh, designing games is my day job, uh, I have spent all day already uh, working on designing a game. And now I ha- suddenly the time has come soon to uh, run a game and that requires the mental image energy that I've already expended during the, the day and my solution to that is a nap <laughs> excellent well um, let's uh, thank uh, both our uh, panelists but also Alexander for his help thank you very much